We are back in classical literature territory this week on Required Reading, where, oh, hi, this is Dr. Nick again. We visit a book that I will be honest, I did not like the first time I read when I was in high school, The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Now, I have since revived my uh, curiosity, uh, and I turns out I really did enjoy this book the second time around. I got the humor, I got the feminist streak in it, but I totally understand if when you saw this you kind of shuddered a little bit because I probably would have done the same thing a couple years ago. But thanks for joining us on this journey. If you are interested or enjoy or don't like, hell, I like negative, as long as it is well-constructed feedback. Wherever you got this, rate, review it, share. Uh, we want to be part of a bigger expanse. So please, 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 please let us know what we're doing well, what we're not doing well so we can improve. And I appreciate any support you can give. Thanks, guys. Welcome to Required Reading, the podcast that's really hard to say out loud when you're wearing a mask. Uh, I'm Dr. Nick Hoffman. On panel, we've got... Mike Burns. And we're talking about probably one that everyone out there has pretended to read or read at one point in their life. Very true. Very true. Uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne's classic, The Scarlet Letter, um, which is a, I guess now we would talk about it as proto-feminist uh, novel. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, but again, like I, this was the scourge of I don't know who I had. I, I didn't. I never had Mr. Burns as a teacher. Right. So it was either Moorhead or um, uh, Decker, Decker, maybe. Um, but yeah, so I definitely struggled through this at one point and tried to watch the Gary Oldman version at one point as well. Oh gosh, yeah, we didn't talk about. Yeah, <laughs> I don't want to go there. Yeah, this is not my movie podcast. This yeah. is my literature podcast. Demi Moore. Yeah, that's right. Ugh. Anyway, um, so uh, let's get into this. Uh, since I assume there are some people reading, listening to this rather than reading it for an assignment, uh, Mike, can you give us the uh, plot synopsis? Uh, yeah, sure. It's a story of a young woman in Puritan New England, Boston, um, who uh, we meet at the beginning of the novel. She steps out of jail. She has a baby in her arms, and she's put on the um, platform, the scaffold outside of town, and um, as a punishment for adultery. And so she has to wear a, a letter A embroidered on her chest uh, for the rest of her life. Uh, and she refuses to name who the father of the child is. And so it's sort of a mystery story, sort of a passionate um, love story in some ways. Um, but yeah, you just sort of watch as Hester Prynne, the main character, tries to navigate this very judgmental society and figure out who the father is and the uh her husband who was assumed to have died um appears and he is um bent on finding out who the um father of the child is and so it's, it's sort of a revenge revenge story as well so, sure. sounds kind of boring um and i think it is uh to high schoolers um I mean, you said you read it or faked reading it or whatever. <laughs> I did the same thing in high school, too. And I resisted teaching it for a long time, and it wasn't until I came to Marist. Um, and it was part of the regular Amlet curriculum that I think I actually taught it for the first time and hadn't read it since mid-'80s, whatever, when I was in 
11th grade. I had an amulet in 11th grade. So, really? yeah. Well, and uh, I guess I will apologize if you guys hear any background music where our recording where we always record, but this time it's a buzz with excitement, which yeah. is totally fine. Uh, think of it as our soundtrack. Yeah, we need a soundtrack. That's we do. good. Yeah. I don't, so, what was your thought on um, both reading it the first time? And I'll say, when I was in high school, I loved literature, I loved history, I liked reading, but this one was a slog and I didn't resonate with me much. Yeah. Um, so, how do I put this? I think it came out in the 1840s, 1850? 1850. 1850. Yeah. Um, we'll get into this as how it fits into American literature because it's super important. And probably before the lost generation, the most internationally known of the American books. I mean, it, quite possibly that and Moby Dick. I, I will say, as an, a high schooler, I, I read. I was not one of those kids. I read, but keeping track of all these very bland names was a slog. Um, and I will be the first to admit that I, I, it took me a while to learn to appreciate books that I didn't see as books for me. Um, rereading it now, I, like you, find incredible importance to it. And a very strong female character, which a, I would not have cared about in high school. Right. Um, and we are desperately trying to push our kids to appreciate now. Um, I'm interested to see what their papers about this are. Yeah, it'll be interesting. And I think all girls chose it. Is that right? I believe so. The, I think the it's students had group. a free choice of several novels and they all chose that, which was interesting. Um... So, yeah, I mean, I think it's what I, what I was definitely was lost on me as a high schooler was the sort of dry humor and uh, criticism of the, I mean, obviously it's a criticism of the Puritans, but um, when I reread it to teach it, at, and in particular Pearl, I love Pearl, um, who is the child of Hester, um, she's hilarious. I mean, yeah, I think I, you know, talked about she's like the little toddler who, you know, embarrasses you in the grocery store. She does the exact wrong thing at the exact right time. Right. And just as an adult reading that, like, oh, I know that kid. I've been there. And you feel for Hester trying to raise this wild child. Yeah. And, the, I mean, single parent. Like, that also has a stigma. But, like, she's so puckish in the way they draw her. Like, she's, oh, yeah. she's skipping around. Right. She's calling people out. Like, and again, in a very conservative society... That's what it really must have felt like. It's it's interesting. Yeah, and then there's there's the point where they threaten to take her away um, uh, from Hester, and um, they, they don't be, because yeah, she's not the model child, mm -hmm. and they're blaming that on being birthed in sin of the adultery there. So That's right. yeah, it's interesting. I don't know. Um, yeah, so um, I mean, what do you think of it now, Nick? Well, I mean, th there's a couple things. First of all, if you decide to read this based on our recommendations, skip the chapter called The Custom House. Oh, please, yeah. Um, but it, there's so much going on, and, and it's interesting to talk about it because when we assigned it to kids, we assigned it as, well, this is very Puritan-esque, right? And we need to see the dark side of Puritanism. And, you know, I, I read an essay, and I believe uh, I'm going to try to give credit where credit's due, um, but it's by... The guy who wrote Everything I Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. Remember? I remember the title, yeah. Uh, but whatever. Uh, he talks about learning about Thanksgiving and talking to his you know, uh, you know, know, friends about Thanksgiving and how when you're a kid, you dress up like a pilgrim. When you're an adult in college, maybe, you, you start to question and you learn about the deaths of the Native Americans, how cool it is. 
And then there's a certain point where you just realize they were humans like anything else, right? Like, and it's it's kind of like that transgression transition for me. Like when I was young and I read it and it felt very much like I have to read this and it's supposed to teach me something and I don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, I, I want people to feel for Hester and especially so how eventually she leans into the fact that it is who she is. They are defining her, but it is who she is, right. which makes it very powerful. Um, I will also say it's interesting that it came out two years after Seneca Falls um, and the Declaration of Sentiments there. So I, I don't know how aware he was of what, but he's living in the region where the transcendentalists are, uh, and he is critical of transcendentalism eventually, like we'll get to. But Seneca Falls in upstate New York. These women are active in Boston, and the war is starting to burn on, and I know publication times are hard, so I'm going to say he was writing it in the 1840s. But having a strong female character in that context is very interesting. Yeah. Um, especially since the strong female characters we've done are people who've been, say, kidnapped by Native Americans, like, you know... Uh, Mary Rowlandson, yeah. Mary Rowlandson and uh, slave narratives. This is a woman who is of the society and being ostracized by society, which is an interesting character trait. Yeah, I'd read... Um, yeah, because you're right. I mean, Hawthorne was living in Concord and Boston area, and um, I, I did a little research for this. I didn't. I knew that he and uh, Emerson like shared the house, the old manse, at one point. Or right. He rented it from him, but apparently they didn't get along. I mean, they were cordial enough, but um, Emerson thought Hawthorne was sort of like too much of a downer, and and Hawthorne thought Emerson was too much of a realist. Sure. But then Margaret Fuller, I read, was in that circle too. And I don't know, maybe you know more about this, but they seem to hint that she was sort of more liberated in modern terms, uh, in terms of sexuality. Is that true? Have you heard that at all? I mean, I've heard that. I mean, and I know she's very smart and, sure. and, and was given a lot of credit and power that was unusual for a woman at that time. But I didn't know that about sexuality. I don't know what that meant. I mean, to be fair, though, at the same time, we've talked about it. There were some utopian communities that did believe in free love. Oh, Hawthorne bought in. He yeah. bought like two or three shares of Brook Farm there you and go. then bagged it, <laughs> which <laughs> I think says it all. Yeah. Um, he realized this isn't going to work. And I think it's funny in the opening chapter, he talks about one of the first things that a uh, establishment must have is um, they have a cemetery and then a prison, like one of the yeah. first two things they have to do. And he mentions in whatever utopia of human virtue and happiness they might project, you know, whatever you think, eventually you're going to need a cemetery for the dead people and a, a, a prison for the bad people. So I thought that was maybe coming out of his um, experience with these, the utopia, the failed utopia yeah. uh, of Brook Farm. Well, and I guess the failed utopia of the Puritan Boston, you know, they, they were setting up a theocracy. And I think even in the first chapter, they allude to the fact that Anne Hutchinson had been exiled. Right. Right? Like, it, it, it's kind of an acknowledgement that these things don't generally work. And apparently, Hawthorne felt some great shame. One of his great-grandfathers, I think, was a judge in the witch trials. No kidding. And one of them that didn't recant. So, you know, many of them recanted later, and this guy went to his grave thinking yeah. he did the right thing. And I think Hawthorne felt a lot of shame and guilt. I know he did, based on what I've read. Um well, and so I, that's playing into this, too. I also want to bring up, and this is me calling on you this time, um, we should talk about the literature of the era and why this rings so different. Because, I mean, this is coming out the same time as Longfellow. This is coming out the same time as Thoreau. Um, and even based on other things of his. Like, he previously was known for 
lighter things, you know, um, almost like Irving-esque kind of like little short stories. Right. And this is very heavy, very intense compared to... Very psychological, I mean, um, and very American. Um, arguably the first... Amer- I hate to say that because I feel like I should know more, but is there a greater, like, first, like, truly American novel? I mean, it's set in the Puritans. You have a strong individual character who's a female, who's an outsider... I mean, it touches on a lot of themes we talk about in the class. And it came in 1850, which is pretty late Well, no, I'm, I'm just saying, like, um, Moby Dick is like the year after this. No, well, is it? 51, 52? Is it? Okay. Yeah. I read, again, for this, that apparently um, Melville had like a cr- huge man crush on Hawthorne. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, and Hawthorne was apparently very reserved and very shy and uh, retiring that way. And there's some letters that, you know, Melville really wanted to bond with them. And, and they were civil enough, but um, <laughs> Melville was more enthusiastic about this. And I think he was 15 y- years younger than Hawthorne. Um, well, I mean, I, I guess if we're talking just about the great American novel, if not this one, they all come out about the same time, because this is the same time. Like, Irving's before this, but Irving's mostly short stories. Right. Um, but, you know, the 1850s would be this, it would be Moby Dick, it would be... Um, what else? I mean, yeah, I think I mean Poe is right around here too. Sure. But Poe is also mostly short stories and poems. Right. So I mean, we, we'll give this credit because frankly, Moby Dick bores the hell out of me. Yeah, and I think what's unique too is yeah, it's such a psychological novel um, on that idea of religion, right, and guilt and um, and freedom versus community, um, you know, which all those things are. Are all wrapped up in the founding of our country, particularly in, in the New England area, um, for certain. So I think it's an interesting study. And I think it endures, too, because there's never been a time when I've taught this when there hasn't been some high-profile pro- person uh, that gets called out or found out for their hypocrisy. I mean, you can count on it. Like, really? <laughs> it's hard to believe. I know, Nick, yes. <laughs> But it happens still. It's a shame. Um, no, but I mean, he really understands human nature, and I think in his short stories or whatever, he gets that, and I think that's what's so great about it. Well, and I mean, we'll eventually talk about the story in specific terms, but I'm also fascinated by how much good literature comes out about Puritan America. And I mean, there's a reason why we start our own literary tradition there with you know Jonathan Edwards and the Mayflower Compact and how impactful that early stuff is because it ripples, right? Like as much as we think, um, you know, we're progressive or liberal in this country, we have a very conservative core. Oh yeah. And uh, we're, we're we're talking about this era now and all that kind of stuff. But De Tocqueville brings up like when we the the Europeans, religion is often an impediment to uh, progressivism. Our progressivism is linked to our Christianity, our very fundamental moral core. And everyone we talked about is trying to give women rights by turning the moral message or temperance or abolition. The second it becomes a moral issue, it gains teeth in this country. Um, And it's just interesting to see the world that we live in now, the kind of things that are getting teeth uh, in that same way. Uh, Things like healthcare. Um, You know, you can see the more moral... um, issues coming to the forefront now that we're in a pandemic and it's getting worse again. And how can we say no to people who are literally like life or death about this kind of stuff? Right. Um, so I, I think that's why it's so f- like fertile ground 
Um, and now Hester, combined with uh, the politics of feminism and the Me Too movement, really just jumps out of the page as a fascinating character. Um, and I wonder, too, and I wanted to ask you this, Nick, if, if you think part of the enduring theme is just the baked-in hypocrisy of America, right? You know, we claim, you know, um, equal rights for all, all men are created equal sort of thing, and yet our practices are very different. And and that's the problem, our ideals versus the reality of it. And are we, I don't know if we're too hard on ourselves that way. We set too lofty a goal. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Um, I, I think Americans are really apt. We're at, too uptight about sex. I mean, yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no complaints there. Um but I, I think it's also that we as... We, can't, we pretend to be free, but we're pretty damn uptight. We are. Um, and I think we don't... We, we naturally want to ostracize people who challenge our social norms. Yet we train, claim, claim to be like these great um, advocates for freedom and individuality. Right? Well, and, and, and it might sound like we're being hard on, say, conservatives here, but I think liberals do the same thing. Oh, my God. They pretend like they're liberal, and the second they're challenged on it, they, they back down. Uh, we develop our little own niche communities um, where, we are, where, where topics are more taboo um, for that reason. I think, I, I think that is kind of at the core of this. Because the woman who is literally ostracized should feel bad for having a scarlet A on her breast, and she shows it off, right? She calling attention, it. right? Right. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's an an apt point. Yeah. So yeah. That, so essentially, this is an adultery story, uh, a story of shame and guilt, which you know those are those endure through humanity. Um, but what's most fascinating is like, why does Hester never name? Um, who the father is, and, and just plot point, um, her husband does show up. He figures it out, but he won't out the person either. And it's sort of this weird, torturous relationship. They call Chillingworth the leech because mm-hmm. he, he's leeching off, watching Dimsdale suffer and die. And uh, it's worth note that the husband showed. We don't know it's the husband, but the character shows up right at the beginning. Right. Uh, he, you know, um, in kind of what is, um, I don't know which came out first, actually, uh, The Return of Martin Gare. Do you know the story? Mm-mm. Um, the Return of Martin Gare is a, I guess, a French version of this, uh, based on an actual real case that happened in the 16th century um, that was made into a book and then ultimately a novel. Uh, that became a movie in 1982, and like all good French films, of course, it stars Gerard Depardieu. Oh, so uh, but it's a, a story of a, a woman who uh, her husband had gone away, um, and comes, and a man comes back. His name is Martin Gare, uh, huh, huh. and the man claims to be the husband. It's just been years. He's welcomed into the family, welcomed into the community. Uh, she he moves back in with the wife, and then the real Martin Gare comes back, and it's you know this this tension like does is she having adultery? Does she actively know? Right. Um. And yeah, it's just an end. It's another story, another version of it that was scratching in the back of my head because I love me some Gerard Depardieu. Um, is it good? It's great. Yeah. I recommend it um, if you can stomach subtitles, which I know you can. 
Uh, I, I'd watch it and find it. Okay. Um, he was a good-looking man in the 80s. Now he's totally Frenched out. And, <laughs> you know, a lifetime of red wine and strong cheese. But, you know. It takes whatever. its toll. It does. Um, but yeah, Speaking of taking its toll. Yay! Um, Segway. Yeah, it's, it's interesting <laughs> in the novel. So Hester, who wears her sin on her chest for all to see, um, compared to the two men who wither away. You know, Dimsdale is withering away out of guilt or inability to confess. He tries to confess. He goes out on the scaffold and yells, and no one pays attention. Right. Um, and then Chillingworth himself sort of shrivels. He turns into a devil, and it's it's eating him up as well. So it's an interesting possible lesson. I mean, the opening of the story, um, Hawthorne has an interesting narrator, sort of a... a um, a narrator that's outside everything commenting on it. And that's the whole point of the um, custom house, which is, it's just setting up a frame narrative and it's really tiresome and you don't need to read it at all. But he says in the opening, he says, you know, as they, they, it's fixed on the prison door. And then there's a wild rose bush there, um, which is obviously a great symbol. You know, this beautiful thing growing up out of this uh, symbol of, uh, penal system really right. um and then um he says let's pluck a flower um he says doo, doo, doo. and let's pluck one of its flowers and present it to the reader it may serve let us hope to symbolize some sweet moral blossom so I'm, that's my question and it's what i ask the students too what is well, after we've read it what is the moral blossom is there a moral to this story sure. i don't know do you get a moral out of it um i would say i do just the, the, the fact that, I mean, I guess nowadays the expression would be slut-shaming, right? And then eventually she owns who she is, which takes power away from the men uh, in this very litigious American society. Uh, she gets power back, which is hard, which is, a, a, I'd say, a good message. Sort of, but it's a yeah. very limited power, though, sure. wouldn't you say? I mean, she uh, sort of redeems herself in the community by the end, but... It's I mean, weird. it's tough to say that, like, she comes out ahead, really. I mean, um, but you're right. I mean, she owns it. And sort of that's one moral I would take from it. It's just the idea of of um, sort of owning who you are, being out there. And I heard one critic, like, this is sort of the logical extension of this is leading to, like, the uh, sexual revolution and LBGTQ things, just sort of saying, this is who I am, and I'm out there, and that's the more healthy response to identity or the healthy practice, rather than keeping these dark secrets that literally eat you alive. Sure. Which I hadn't really thought of it in that way, but it makes sense. I think that's that's a good, a fair reading on it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it's a, the moral maybe is about hypocrisy and power, and I don't know. Yeah, I mean, so the, the the narrative of this book is fairly straightforward as far as the plot goes. I mean, we we got it all out there. This is a psychological drama. All it is is that it slowly builds, and yeah. we as the reader slowly learn who Chillingsworth is. We slowly learn that Dimsdale's the father. Um, and it's dramatic irony, but much before the characters do. So yeah, right. if you're a close reader and. And students, and I'm sure I was the same way the first time through, you don't necessarily figure out who the father is until right. there's clearly stated there. But the clues are there all along. That's right. Yeah. And, and you know, we, 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 so I guess the best way to go forward is to kind of get into these people a little bit. Okay. Uh, Dimsdale is the young, hotshot pastor guy. Right. 
And so it adds another layer of irony that he is supposed to be the moral authority and is so easily seduced by Hester Prynne. And we don't really know that story. Right. That's the whole thing. Like, yeah. what was this a one-time thing? And that led to Pearl? Was this a torrid affair that they kept secret? Who knows? Yeah, that's interesting that we never, never get that. That's right. But it's enough that Hester sticks around because kids always ask, like, why didn't she just leave after she spends her time on the scaffold? And so there's something holding her to the town. That's right. And so as much as we're told this, like you said, it's kind of a weird, omniscient third-person narrator who's supposed to be a person in the town who's telling this story at the customs house, right? Um, well, he's telling this story from time. Like, and it's based on, long story short, Hawthorne was a real customs officer, but he frames it like, oh, I found this story when I was rooting around in the attic. So that's right. 100 years later, 150 years later. So Hawthorne's 150 years removed, and now we're 150 years removed. That's right. 170. But I interrupted you. You're no, talking no, about, please. You're talking about uh, Dimsdale. And Dimsdale is, I mean, bemulleted like everyone was, but he's supposed to be handsome, young, but also charismatic. Like, there's this, this idea that whenever he enters a room, everyone's drawn to him. He's young, but everyone seeks his counsel. And um, we're introduced to him briefly at the scaffold where he gives a speech, right? Uh, but we're introduced to him kind of more earnestly in a scene a little later on where the elders of the town, the doctor, him, and eventually Chillingsworth also, are discussing what's to be done with Pearl. Right. And whether or not Hester has enough moral standing um, to like raise a child or not, because she's clearly committed a grievous sin, uh, one, of the, one of the big ten, um, and therefore her morality has been called into question. Right? Yeah. Um, and Dimsdale is so super sensitive that becomes which what is what makes him an effective preacher. But then, as he internalizes um, all this guilt, it, it literally eats him up. And he tries to confess many times, uh, and people just view him as like, "Oh, our saint is confessing." If he thinks he's polluted, oh my God, what am I? And right. um, and that just makes him love him all the more. That's right. So he's in this vicious vicious cycle. And the mea culpas are so fantastic because, I mean, again, I'm a Catholic. I appreciate guilt. I, I do. I, it's <laughs> As am I, yes. I, yeah, it's something that we can recognize. Baked uh, in deeply, yes. That's right. Um, but, but, you know, when we pull away from that just a skosh, we see on top of the guilt that he is feeling, which he very clearly is feeling the guilt. You sympathize with the guy. Um, the idea, well, yeah. The town makes it worse, and that's that's the part that always tickles me because he's trying to be earnest, and they're really like, "Oh my!" Like <laughs> as though he's taking on the guilt of the whole exactly, community, right? Which yeah, is so funny. And yeah, it, it is funny. And so as you're saying, you know, shaking my head because it he completely hangs Hester out there. I mean, yes. no doubt about that. Um, and he's so weak and feckless in many points. You're just like, "Come on, man!" Um, so that's. That's Arthur Dimsdale. Um, let's talk about Chillingworth, Roger Chillingworth. Yeah. Great name, Chillingworth. Yeah. This, and I, I will give Hawthorne a lot of credit. Um, Hester is not a name that holds up, I would say. But otherwise... I've never taught a Hester. Have I've you? never taught a Hester uh, You might have poisoned that name, yeah. But I will say, the names of this book across the board are pretty good. Mm -hmm. uh, Dimsdale is dim. Uh, Pearl he is... He dims, yeah. He, his star dims over time, yeah. That's right. Uh, and Hester is 
uh, her her daughter Pearl really is a little gem. Like, oh yeah, it's great. I I, I do I do like that. And uh, the symbolism too, like you know, a little grain of sand and imperfection leads to this gem, and so it, it's really clever that way too, just um, as a literary name. And it needs to uh, develop over time, right? Right. Like it's it's and, and there there is fun here, um, but I I will admit too when I first read it, I saw none of the fun. <laughs> Cause, cause Same. It, it is a very dry um, book, but reading it now, like you almost want to like internalize it speeding up at the end because it does feel like a drama. It does feel very raw. Right. Um, so Chillingsworth, he is. I am just a new man in town, and I want to know what's happening with this poor woman on the stage. He, I mean, he he also deserves no sympathy because uh, he sees something happening to his wife. Um, doesn't bat an eye. And it's just like I'm. He plays like the outsider. Um, right yeah, away. and so I mean, the if there again, I know I missed this in high school, and it wasn't until I was reteaching it that you get the sense that you know the sense he spells it out that he was this elderly man. Hester was this beautiful young woman in town in England, and then they moved to Amsterdam. And he says he feels a little guilt and like. I know you could never love me. I'm this deformed old man mm-hmm. uh, with this brilliant mind, but she was just sort of along for the adventure. I don't know. We never really know yeah. that. So he doesn't blame Hester so much, which is interesting, and that's a whole dynamic about relationships and and blame that I don't think you can appreciate as a teenager, maybe. No. Um, but yes, and so he comes over. He has this sort of weird scene where he gets ransomed, um, from the Indians and that leads him back into town and that's when he first sees Hester and then he sets up shop sort of as the town medicine man which right. is dramatic irony too because he's the one poisoning Dimsdale over time just right. making him sick um, and it's not quite clear whether it's literal or moral or whatever but Dimsdale is definitely dimming over time there's no right. doubt about that um, so yeah and so his revenge is self-consuming i guess he's the leech he's living off of dimsdale's power that's right right. and we don't know until the end i i I believe dimsdale doesn't know until the end who he is like there's a dramatic showdown about two-thirds three-quarters of the way through the book yeah hester confesses at one point um i forget what chapter it is but she lets him know and he sort of says oh oh i should have known um, but does nothing about it in typical Dimsdale's fashion, you know, rather than stand up or fight for it, he he just is paralyzed by it all. Well, and if, I mean, we can talk about this book out of order because it doesn't really matter, but my favorite Dimsdale scene is the one where he goes up on the scaffold himself. He tries to confess to the entire town at the top of his lungs, and the only person who shows up to care at all is Hester. Yeah. And she's like, you know, I mean, and it's a very, it's almost a condescending scene. You're like, you can just picture her throwing the blanket over him, patting on the back. It's okay, buddy. You tried, right? Because right? it's just so pathetic. Like, I did it. It's me. Why? And the lights in town just start going off faster as though they're like, oh, he's drunk. <laughs> like, and, like, and again, like, I totally get it because, like, it's the... Fourth of July, and everyone's like, oh, America! And you just see the lights slowly turn. You, like, turn the lock on the door. You're like, well, let him have his time. That's really what the town's doing. And Hester's like, it's okay, buddy. You're, you try. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, I guess he's a comic, tra- tragic comic figure or comic. I mean, you see it, and again, as an adult, I, you see the comedy in that. He's trying to do something, but he's so weak and so ineffectual. And every time he tries to do something, it tries to confess it doesn't work out um right so 
I mean, he's he's Pagliacci. He's a sad clown. Like, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah. Um, and then Chillingworth, yeah. So there's a scene where um, he he goes to Hester in the jail when she's still in the jail, and Pearl is an infant and crying, and he whips out his little medicine bag, and and Hester thinks you're gonna poison me. Right. Um, but he wants her to live to sort of endure that shame, uh, and that's his punishment to her, I guess. I don't know. I and mean, it's an interesting relationship, how you know in. Where rather than be mad at Hester, he's more mad at whoever the father is. Sort well, of yeah, very clearly. Displacement, I guess, or whatever the psychological term is. That's right. Um, my thought just completely went off. Uh, we should talk about Pearl. We, yeah. we, we've teased her. Uh, she's your favorite character, uh, right? So yeah. let's, let's bring her in. I, I think she's just, she is just hilarious because she is constantly, she is the living embodiment of the sin, as they say many times. And the, we talked about symbolism of her name, but she's just, she's always pointing to Arthur. And then again, the clues are there all along that he's the father. Um, there's a scene in the woods where she's throwing little prickle burrs and they're sticking on him. She's picking them off Hester or putting them on the A and throwing, I mean, she's literally sticking things on him, sticking the sin, sticking the relationship to him. Um, and she's saying, you know, where's your letter? You know, my mom has this letter. Where's yours? <laughs> and just, you know, I just love how forthright and, 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 pure she is she needs a spinoff on her own i think i would love to know what happened to pearl after after the story yeah that's great and and she just kind of skips around like and again this is puritan society and it's i mean you're a parent i'm a parent sometimes you just want to kick your feet up and laugh when your kid is interacting with people like because what society wants us to do is say no no sit down you know you're not supposed to do that but Kids are hilarious. Yeah, no one knows what to do with her. Yeah, Hester doesn't know what to do with her. The town doesn't know what to do with her, and and she is really like outside of the law, literally. Because Hester and we should say that Hester and Pearl live outside of town because they're ostracized. They're sort of always on the fringe, and so she's free to do whatever she wants. Um, and that is very troublesome for this society that's trying to control everything. That's right. And it's, I guess, again, appropriate that Dimsdale never has anything to say, and she immediately gloms onto him mm-hmm. because she's loud and outgoing and boisterous and silly. And he was that young, fiery guy. He must have been, right? He, he yeah. must have been. Right. Like, and again, like you're talking Puritans. You're talking about a four-hour sermon or whatever. <laughs> Something must have kept people entertained. Right. And he buttons up around her, and she like immediately gloms on. Yeah. It's so. Funny. She's the one that sees through it all, and I just love her spunk, I guess. She's hilarious, I find, which, again, I missed when I was younger. So I wonder I wonder what you think, Nick. So we offered this as a free choice book, but should we teach this? And, and we, I was looking back at my notes. I don't think I taught it since 2016. Um, uh-huh. Shannon Hip and I, it was part of our um, AP Lit curriculum at one point. Um. Um, is it worth teaching, or is it wasted on the young? You don't necessarily, or is it one of those things you should read early and then come back to later? I will be interested in our debate on Catcher in the Rye uh, for the same reason, um, because I hate that kid now. Oh, I hate him. Oh, really? As an adult, I'm like, stop whining. As an adult, I just like, oh, God, the kid just needs a hug. Somebody give him a hug. But I mean, like, 
it, it's the same kind of thing. I'll be interested to see what the girls who read this for our class will say. Mm-hmm. Um, because we've both done it. But we're trying, you know, when you're desperate at the front of a classroom, like, this is a funny line. And it's silence, uh, right? And <laughs> yeah. you're like, all right, I get it. Look, I'm old now. Right? Just, yeah. just appreciate it, damn it. Um, appreciate this literature, damn it. Uh, but I will say the kids, at least generally, even if they don't find the joke that you and I find funny, funny, they get the importance of stuff. Like, they will be impressed by something even if they don't get the joke. Oh, it blows me away. I mean, these kids are much smarter than I ever was um, or maybe so. Yeah. That's fun to work with them. But I wonder if they, yeah. You're right. We'll have to see what they say. Um, but, like, I I don't know. I don't. Because, you know, and we're to the point almost in the podcast where we could synopsize it. We don't have to yet. But for me, I almost say if we do it, it needs to be guided. Oh, definitely. Because... Doing it the way we're doing, what we're letting the kids go on their own, I'll be really interested to see what they get and what they don't get. You have to be an advanced motivator to put through the winding syntax and the subtlety of the narration. Um, it takes work. And so if there was only one book that we all did together for term one, is it this one, mm-hmm. is the question. And my answer is, I don't know. I think that would be the only way we could do it if everyone read it together and we did it together. But I just... I don't know. I'm, I'm with you in that quandary because it is, as an adult, I, I do appreciate it more. Meanwhile, I will say, doing Gatsby together makes perfect sense because oh. they can understand Gatsby. Right. You can get Gatsby. You can enjoy Gatsby. Yeah. This takes more work. And when I when I reread this and, and thinking about talking to you today, I thought this would be a fun one to teach at the Marist Evening Series or something. Oh, yeah. Where you get adults that are willing to come to this. Maybe because they're just like, oh, I read that in high school. I didn't get it. Oh, let's talk about it now or, or whatever it might be. And then I, I mentioned that. And I, last time I taught this, um, oh, no, a long time ago when I taught this in American Lit, we did it as an optional read with me. Were we doing read with me when you were here? No, we did not. So it was something I started with Suzanne Greenwood in eighth grade where we would read a novel and ask the parents to read it parallel just to sort of reinforce them. Uh-huh. Ideally, have talks about books like we're doing here around the kitchen table or whatever. And I spun that off into my 10th grade class. And um, a student, Meg Brooks, uh, I remember her reading it with her mom, and Meg was the perfect person to read Hester. I'm very smart and independent. Um, and she wrote a brilliant paper about it. And she's now an English teacher at Mount Vernon. But I think... And I'm sure that she had amazing discussions with her mother, who was also an, an amazing artist. Um, I think you need that other perspective or someone to bounce ideas off of. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what the four girls who read it, what the conversations were they had, and did they need each other, um, all those sorts of things. Because, yeah, if we get back to required reading, it should be required reading, but I don't know if it's right for everybody or in the right situations. It, it needs needs some guidance. And I, I think it's the sort of thing that you want to talk through it with somebody, too. Whereas okay. Gatsby, you can read on one level and enjoy it. And and um, this may be a little more complicated, a little more, definitely more subtle. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I mean, and... On one hand, you get everyone gets to make a speech about what what their motivations are. Mm-hmm. Uh, but unless you're looking in the right corners, I, I think it can come across as dry. You yeah. know, 
um, I read it knowing that we would be talking about it with students and I'd be talking about it here with you. And so I was trying to find what we do in the podcast, nuggets that we can talk about. And when you and looking at it that way, yeah, there's a lot of fun in it. I just – how do I put this? Teachers, if you're listening and you want to teach it, be prepared to have to discuss it a lot with the kids. Maybe even set it up. Uh, you know, Do a reverse class where you're talking about it before they read because that's where the, the, the fun comes from. I, this is my probably second or third time through the book, and we don't have to talk about Gary Oldman. Um, okay. But, but I mean, I, I, I've seen that, that bad movie, and so I, I, I knew where the movements of the book were coming. That helped. Um, because then I can really get into what's happening to Hester at a psychological level. Right. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I will say that the book is um, worth teaching, but you have to be really willing to teach it. Sure. Yeah, yeah I would agree. Um, I love it. Yeah. And I think adults would appreciate it more. An ambitious, for the right person, this could be an amazing book or the right teacher-student combination. Right, right, right. Um, so that's that. Uh, Mike, are you reading anything right now? Um, I just finished an audio book the other night um, by Bart Ehrman, E-H-R-M-A-N. Do you know him? Yeah, Ehrman. Uh, yeah. He, uh, he does a lot of uh, New Testament stuff. Right, yeah. So it's looking at the historical Jesus. Um, oh, cool. And I heard an interview with him, and then I just found his book on Hoopla. And it's good. I'd listened to the one, How Jesus Became Messiah, or how it... The Making origins, Jesus, I think it's called. Yeah, how the origins of Christianity. So looking at the historical person, whatever we can find out about Jesus, and then how that birthed Christianity. It's yeah. a it's a sort of similar book on that. It was good. I, I like him. Yeah. I've read a couple of his. How about you? Um. So, uh, it is the I, I read this in October for Halloween, but I figure it's bleak midwinter and also weirdly kind of feminist. Uh, I read The Haunting of Hill House uh, oh, by yeah, Shirley Jackson, nineteen fifty nine, something like that. Um, but you know, if you want a kind of little bit of a horror story, it's fun. Uh, it's short. It's quick. I think it's 250 pages. Uh, but the main character is someone who's grown up. She's, I guess you'd call her like almost an old maid type. She never got married. And for 1959, it's heavily coded. She's a lesbian. Uh, she falls in love with a woman. Um, set across this backdrop of an overwhelming mother. And uh, I don't know. I, I, I enjoyed it. It's one that I'd seen done in movie form a couple different ways. Um, generally not very well. So I'm like, oh, I, really? I could read a scary story. Hey, is it scary? It, it, it has its psychological moments. Okay. You know, it's very subtle, kind of builds. And again, Shirley Jackson, someone I've read the short story, the classic high school short story of the lottery. Right. Um, and I was like, well, well there's got to be more to her than the lottery. There was something in the New Yorker recently about her. I didn't read it, but I was leafing through. There's an article about her work or a new appreciation for her work. Um, so that's yeah. funny you mentioned that. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's a bunch of people get locked in a haunted house because the guy who's hosting the party doesn't believe ghosts are real and like, oh, this is a haunted house. Let's see if there's actually ghosts around. And uh, over the next week, they're kind of just there. Um, there's a wife character that's like totally like Peter Venkman from Ghostbusters who's totally all in. She just has to have her seance and she'll prove it and people end up dying because it's a, it's a haunted house. Right. Like, what else do you want? Right. Um, so look it up. It's By the time this episode comes out, it'll still be the cold of January. Nothing like a haunted house in the cold of January. Yeah. So. Anyway, thanks, guys. Thank you, Mr. Burns. Oh, thank you, Nick. This is fun. It as is. As always. 
Um, and thank you for listening. Write, subscribe, uh, write reviews, uh, and thanks. Required Reading is a product of Marist Podcasting Club and Dude Letter Podcasting. It is produced by Nick Hoffman and hosted by Mike Burns and Nick Hoffman. The theme song is Feeling Good by Kevin McLeod, used under the Creative Commons 4 license. Find it at incomtech.com or linked on our website. The views expressed here are the views of the hosts and the panelists and do not reflect the views of the Marist School or the Society of Mary.